Well, this morning, as we continue, we're going to make a kind of a, a brief flyover of Ruth and First and Second Samuel. So we'll touch down a couple places, kind of like we've been doing, just to try to get a sense of the overall thread of uh, the scriptural message of salvation. And what we'll see, I think, in these books are significant events, things that happen in this narrative. And as we do so, as we see these events, we'll be able to trace the promises that God has made to his people. And these events take place in the lives of real people. So really, that'll kind of be our outline as we look at some real people who lived um, and the stories of these people hopefully will point us to what God is doing. So let's think again about God's promises. You know, as we even thinking back to Abraham and, and the original promise that he made to Abraham, part of that promise involved land and a promised land. And, and last week we saw in, jo in Joshua how the people were able to finally enter the promised land. And so with that uh, truth in mind, you know, we might begin to think that we're getting close to the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Uh, they're in the land, um, and God is dwelling with them. But, as we were able to see last week, um, that's not necessarily the case. Um, Terry helped us to see that entering the land of God's promise was not uh, sufficient to ensure that God's people would be faithful. And Judges was a picture of unfaithfulness. So we walked through that particular time in history, and and they were unfaithful despite all of God's clear blessings. So he had given them this land and was dwelling with them, and yet they continued to rebel against them. So you know, God has made Israel into a great nation at this point. He has gone with them on their journey into the land. He dwells with them, and yet these promises are not sufficient to ensure that his people will be faithful. Uh, so... Despite that, uh, despite the fact that God has done all that he has done for Israel, in Judges we saw this repeating pattern. The people rebel against God and worship idols, and so God brings judgment onto the people. And in face of that judgment, the people cry out to God for salvation. God's merciful to them. He brings a judge. He brings uh, some relief to the people. And then when the people... Are, have that relief, then they go right back into the same rebellion and idol worship that they were in before. Um, and so even with God's doing all of this, even with his blessings, this is a serious problem, right? That the people continue to be faithful. And this problem that the people have, it's not a physical problem. So they have all of the blessings that they would need physically. Um, God's given them everything they need. I think, again, it's a land that's fruitful. It's described as a land flowing with milk and honey. He, he gave them the, the vineyards and the cities that were already built. They just had to go in and take those things. So they had every blessing that they po possibly could need physically, um, and yet they still have this problem. Um, so the problem is not physical blessing. The problem is a problem of the heart. Uh, and think about that. Even later on, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. 
who can understand it? Um, and that's the problem that the people have, this problem of the heart. And so there's also another problem we saw last week at the very end of Judges. Um, Judges 21:25 says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So uh, there's another problem here. The people do not have a king. So people with six hearts need a king in order to lead them in righteousness. Left to themselves, they will follow their hearts. As we saw, they will do what, what they see as right in their own eyes. And this leads to idolatry, it leads to destruction, and ultimately it leads to death. Um, and so that's the pattern we saw. And in fact, that's really the pattern we've seen since the garden, is it not? That we continue to see people faithless because of the heart condition that they have. So they, they need changed hearts. We will definitely get to that as we go through the Old Testament. But they also need a king. Um, if they're going to do what's right in their own eyes without a king, then they need a king to steer them in the right direction, point them in the way of righteousness. So in these books this morning, in Ruth and in First and Second Samuel, the quest for a king is going to begin. So let's start off in Ruth this morning and see how the groundwork is laid for a king. So turn over to Ruth chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 18, just kind of set the, the stage and, and lay the groundwork for this particular book of the Bible. Verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will, re we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. 
Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but the death departs me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So this narrative in Ruth takes place, as it said, in the time of the judges. So think again to what we saw last week in the judges. What do we know about that time in Israel's history, the time of the judges? Exactly. There was no king. Man did what was right in his own eyes. Yeah, what else? Was it a time of faithfulness? Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah, it was a time of faithlessness. Everyone going after uh, what they thought was right uh, and just a time of faithlessness to God and, and not serving God. Um, and so we might be surprised when we come to this story, we see the story of Ruth, that we're going to see uh, someone who act, acts in faithfulness uh, in this time that was characterized by unfaithfulness. And so we might be surprised by that. Naomi seems to be surprised by Ruth's faithfulness. In verse 15, she says, Look, your sister-in-law went back to her people and to her gods. You know, why wouldn't you do the same? Um, but listen to what Ruth says again in verse 16. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you will go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. So here is uh, this woman, Ruth. And she's demonstrating not only faithfulness to Naomi, but the intent to be faithful to God and to the people of God as well. And what might be surprisingly or particularly surprising about this, that it's Ruth who's the faithful one? I would imagine that that was quite a sacrifice for her. Quite a sacrifice, yeah. I mean, her sister went back, and the reason that Naomi says to go back is so that you can marry and, you know, establish a life. But what's surprising about it being Ruth? She didn't have the background of faith. She didn't have the background of faith because she's a Moabite, right? She's not an Israelite. And so there's something interesting, I think, going on here. There's a hint of God's covenant that we see even in this scene. Um, Ruth is not an Israelite. She's from Moab. The Moabites were idol worshipers. They were foes of the Israelites um, in the wilderness years. Um, and so we wouldn't expect a Moabite to pledge faithfulness, faithfulness to God or Israel, except that God had promised that even to Abraham. He said, you will be a blessing to all nations. And that, you know, the implication there is that the gospel, the truth, and God's promise and blessings will extend beyond Israel to all the nations. So we see a hint of that happening right here. Here's a Moabite. Here's one from the nations who, who is demonst demonstrating faithfulness. And it's in a particular time where unfaithfulness was the word of the day. Um, and so when Israel is being unfaithful, here is a foreigner who you know, we see this glimpse of faithfulness. So we see this hint there of God's covenant. It is still on track, things with God's promises to Abraham and, 
and uh, to Israel are still, they, they haven't died yet. They're still going on. And so um, another thing that we see here in the book of Ruth is this idea of redemption. So just kind of briefly uh, catching us up to speed on the story. After uh, Ruth promises to go with Naomi, they go back to Bethlehem, and then Ruth determines that she will provide for them by gleaning in the fields, which just meant she would go after those who were reaping in the fields and collect the leftover grain. And chapter 2 tells us that she happened to come to a particular field who is owned by a man named Boaz, who just happens to be a close relative of Naomi's husband. Um, and so all of this is, you know, is it just by chance or, or is God orchestrating these events? Um, uh, Boaz takes notice of Ruth and makes sure she's protected and provided for. And so we see God's kindness on display as well in the story. Then in chapter 3, Boaz's interest in Ruth kind of ratchets up a notch, and he commits to fulfill his role as redeemer, as a close relative. And what this meant was that he would um, uh, commit to preserve the family and the property of the man who had died. And this uh, could and quite possibly would mean marrying the widow of this man. So, so Boaz promises or he commits that he will do that regarding Ruth. There's one small problem, though, if you look in, in chapter 3, verse 11. It says, uh, And now, my daughter, do not fear, for I, this is Boaz talking, do not fear, I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it's true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So uh, Boaz is promising that he will redeem Ruth, but there's this other closer relative that's kind of first in line to do this. So uh, turn to chapter 4, and, and we'll read kind of how this plays out. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate, verse 1, and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of who Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he took, turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance." Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. 
Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gates of this native place. You are witnesses this day. So let's start right there. So stop there. There's an incredible picture of God's love in the actions of Boaz towards Ruth. You know, if we read the whole story, he's old, she's young, um, and the fact that he is willing to redeem her is exactly what she needed. You know, she's a foreign woman in a place where um, she, she could be in danger. She has no way of making a living in this culture. So he did what she needed. Um, he redeemed her out of her poverty. He buys her back that she might belong to the Redeemer. And, and notice that this redemption, uh, in this model, she actually becomes the Redeemer's wife. She becomes his bride. And what should that remind us of? Yeah, we are the bride of Christ, right? So he is the Redeemer, and he calls us, he buys us out of our slavery to sin and uh, actually makes the church us his bride and so there's again this incredible picture that we're given about redemption redemption is the one who buys us out of our slavery actually calls us to be his own and the picture of the bridegroom christ and his bride the church is on display here so um, there's this incredible picture that we see in this story uh, and then we shouldn't be surprised then that this story is actually pointing us ultimately to the king. And so we're, we're moving in a tra trajectory, as I said, the, the quest for the king has begun. And so this is, takes place in a, real, a very real way. Look at verse 11 there in chapter 4. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and, she, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So already the stage is set for the king. You know, David is going to, as we know, be the king that we're looking for. So this whole story really points us towards the fact that God is about to bring a king to Israel. And so um, it's interesting that the people who witnessed this, the, the transaction at the, at the gate there, and then the women who are proclaiming a blessing to Naomi, they all, if you heard in those words, they had God's covenant in mind. They think back to, to the things that God has promised, 
And then this all points forward to this one born who is the father of Jesse and the father of David. So any kind of questions or thoughts on Ruth before we look at First and Second Samuel? Well, Naomi was a widow and um, Ruth was a widow. Mm-hmm. Do we have any idea if Ruth Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, the only thing that gives us a chronology is just in the beginning there where it says they went down to Moab and stayed there 10 years, um, and then her son died, uh, her husband died, and the, her, her husband died, then 10 years, her sons died, um, but then we're not really given a time frame. It, I think it happens fairly quickly. Um, they go back to Israel. Uh, Ruth starts gleaning in the fields, and Boaz takes notice of her, and then, uh, so I think all of that probably is a fairly short time, but we don't know. When he took notice of her, at that time, he did not know that she was, um, that her mother-in-law was a relative. Well, he doesn't know who she is at first. When she's out gleaning in the field, he asks his servants, who is that? And they tell him, that's Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi. So now he knows who it is because he was a close relative of Naomi's husband who had died. So, so she knows at that point. Yeah, Alex. I know everything is not like exact translation like for the New Testament, but like, so if, if Boaz is like a type of Christ, what are we to like interpret of the other redeemer that says he's going to redeem it and then he says later that he can't redeem it? Paul says that perhaps is Adam. So you, you could think about it along those lines. You know, there's somebody who is in line, is a relative, but is unable to be a redeemer or unwilling, you know, uh, certainly unable. But Paul, what would, would you add anything to that? Uh, yeah, because Adam's closer and that um, we're the children of Adam, you know, Adam and Eve. We're all their offsprings. And uh, Boaz, being a type of Christ, is the one who came through Mary, born of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so, yeah, so our closest relative by blood, Adam, is unable to redeem us. And yet God provides one who is both willing and able and will do it. So, yeah, there's, there's a good picture in that. Now, when it came to the sandal, who gave the sandal to who? So the guy who was unwilling to redeem, I think he took off his sandal. So he yeah. Well, I don't think he gave it to him. It was just like a picture. It's like yeah, I'm taking off. Kind of yeah, symbol. yeah. That's just kind of a weird little uh, uh, cultural reference there. Yeah. We could do that today, I guess. Instead of signing on the bottom line, we just take off our shoe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was in the presence of witnesses, so everybody knew it was a legal transaction, however they happened to do that. Well, let's keep moving here. The groundwork is laid for the coming king. David is in view, but it's going to take us a little while before we get to David. There's a lot more that has to unfold, as we know, before David ascends to the throne. Um, And so as we begin to kind of look forward in in 1 and 2 Samuel, Israel needs a king 
Uh, one reason is because judges, prophets, and priests are inadequate. Um, so think about that. Uh, up to this point in Israel's history, they'd had leaders. They'd had a, had a lot of leaders. Moses was a prophet, um, and he led them faithfully for 40 years, but in the end, he failed to lead them into God's promise. Um, and then you think about priests. What about priests? Are they sufficient to lead the people of God? Well, think of Aaron. He led them into idolatry. Um, his sons, Nadab and Abihu, decided to improvise in their worship, and they were struck dead. Um, so priests are inadequate. Um, what about the judges? That's who's ruling at this time. And yet the judges have been unable to keep the people from doing what is right in their own eyes. You know, there's even periods of time in this, in this history where there are prophets, priests, and judges all leading, ruling at the same time. You know, some people fulfilled more than one of those roles. And yet, they are, these, are, these leaders are inadequate. Israel still needs a king. So turn over to 1 Samuel. Um, and while you're turning over there, think, think about this question. If Israel needs a king... Um, is Israel really without a king at this time? Okay. So, so perhaps God is their king, actually. Um, and there are a lot of hints in Scripture that says that. Um, but, and we'll, we'll touch on that here. I think that's right. Actually, they do have a king at this point. It, it is God himself. But as we look at 1 Samuel, the book starts with the story of a man named Elkanah. He has two wives. One's name's Peninnah, and she's able to have children. The other is named Hannah, and she is barren. Um, but after much prayer and vows of dedication, the Lord is gracious, and he, gives, he blesses Hannah with a son. She names him Samuel, and then she prays a prayer of worship and thanksgiving to the Lord. So look there in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. Listen to this prayer that Hannah prays. Verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. So it's interesting to hear the language that Hannah is praying in a prayer of praise and thanksgiving to God. You know, note the way 
the way she ascribes certain attributes to God. The Lord kills and brings to life. There's no rock like the Lord. The bows of the mighty are broken. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He guards the feet of the faithful. His adversaries shall be broken to pieces. He will judge the ends of the earth. You know, this is language that's appropriate for a king, right? A king who rules uh, and protects. Um, and so I think we see a hint that Hannah understands that, even praying kind of prophetically that the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. So, you know, there, there is this understanding that God was their king. He was the one who was ruling over them, and he is the leader that they needed. Uh, but what do the people of Israel do with God as king? They reject him as king. Is that not what we see read? Even turn over to chapter 8 in 1 Samuel. We read verses 1 through 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are doing to you. So you, God understands very clearly that the people, his people, are rejecting him as king. And so um, God makes it clear as well here that the people's desire for an earthly king is because they have rejected him as king. They want a king, but they don't want God as king. And how is that possible? I mean, you, th think, you think through this. Um, God has been leading the people. Um, God has been their king. They understand that. And yet they reject him as king. How, how is that even possible? It's like a slap in the face. That it is. Yeah. Yeah. Hardness of heart. Yeah. What else do you think? I think that's right. Because they want his kings like the nations around them. So maybe they want to be like everybody else, but they're pressured so they would succeed. Yeah. Yeah, there was, there was something that didn't allow them to see how much God loved them. They rejected him. Their hearts were hardened. You know, it's right back to that heart problem that we talked at the beginning. You know, God had given them all the physical blessings, yet their heart is not right. Their heart is sick. Their heart is sinful. Um, and so that heart problem is, is kind of at the root of why they would reject a good, loving God as their king. You know, not only 
do we see there even again at the end of Judges that people did what was right in their own eyes when they didn't have a king, but actually we realize people want to do what's right in their own eyes. They don't want to follow a king. They don't want uh, someone to rule over them. They want to be the ones who are in charge. And, and that's true for, for us. We want to do what's right in our own eyes um, without a king. We don't naturally want a king to rule over us. So the people rejected God as king. You know, or, as uh, Catherine notes there, if we do want a king, we want a king of our own making. You know, we want a king like the nations have. We look at them, and that looks good. And so we want that type of king. And, and again, listen to, to what the people say in verse 5. Behold, your old, your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. You know, they looked out and they said, we want a king like that. We don't want a king like God. We want a king like all the, the other nations. And so um, why is that? You know, why do you think that is that they wanted a king like the other nations had? <laughs> okay, yeah. Social justice, social Okay, yeah, yeah, they want to be like everyone else. They look and they're envious. Um, they covet what others have. And what really is behind that? Um, why would a king from the other nations or why would the other nations themselves be attractive? ironic thing about that is, you know, it wasn't, I don't think, that the other people had all of this physical blessing well, they, that they, they didn't have. No. Um, God had given Israel everything. Um, they'd, God had given Israel even the kingdoms of these other nations. But I think what's at the heart of it is to want a king like the other nations is really to want to be able to worship a god like the other nations. So they don't want the god, the true god, over them, holding them accountable. They want to be able to worship these other gods that uh, are effectively uh, a picture of themselves. You know, all the false gods are just things that are created by man and made in man's image. Uh, because of they're the kind of things that God or that man does when it's right in his eyes, in their eyes. And so it's that heart problem. Um, and so as they want a king like the other nations, um, they're really saying we want a king of our own making. We want, we want to be 
uh, in charge. We want to be king ourselves, actually, um, because that's what we see. And so they don't want God as king. They want to be like the other nations. They want a king like the other nations. They want to serve the gods of the other nations. And they want this king to fight their battles for them. If you look at chapter 8, verse 19, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So, you know, they want, they want king to do everything that they don't want to do. They want a king um, that will allow them to do what they want to do. They want to be like the other nations. Um, and so it's interesting. And then what? And then what? Yeah, well, let's get to that. Let's, let's see what that looks like. Um, you know, if that's what we want, if we want a king that's like the other nations, then surprisingly, God then is going to give them what they ask for. And that's what we have in Saul. Uh, Saul is a king that fits the bill. So turn over to uh, chapter 10. And let me read verse 17 through 25. So the people want a king, um, verse 17, Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And if you, you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matratites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his home. So. You know, there we get this hint about what kind of a king Saul will be. Um, he looks the part. He's, he's, a, he's taller than everybody. He looks good. Um, he's a head taller than everybody else. And that's the kind of king they want. The people are pleased by this. They see Saul and they say, long live the king. Despite the fact that they had to pull him out of hiding, you know, to, to get him to be king, he looked right. Um, and it's interesting. Not the same Saul who became Paul. No, no, that's thousands of years later. Uh, so, um, so yeah, he looks the part. Um, he looks like kings that the other nations have. He looks like the king that they wanted. <clears throat> and actually, he starts starts off well. Um, Paul star or Saul starts off. He's obedient to the Lord at first. He leads Israel in battle against their enemies. 
and he's listening to Samuel's godly counsel. But it turns out that Saul has the same heart problem that the people themselves have. Um, in chapter 13, if you turn over there, uh, Saul's armies are fighting the Philistines. He's, he's doing what he needs to do as king, but look at what happens in verse 5. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that, they were, saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the ford of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people following him trembled. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within these, the appointed time and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he has commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So uh, the picture there is that the king was not to offer the sacrifice. But Saul got impatient. Samuel wasn't getting there in time. So he took matters into his own hand, not unlike Nadab and Abihu uh, back in Leviticus. And he offers the sacrifice, which was unlawful. And so Samuel says, you know, you have done wrong. The Lord has rejected you as king. You are no longer king. Um, and yeah, uh -huh, absolutely. Yeah, he wasn't willing to wait. Um, he wasn't willing to be obedient. He looked at the circumstances and said, I have to take matters into my own hands. Um, and it was disobedience. It was a rejection of the Lord. So Samuel uh, makes that very clear. Um, and then turn over to chapter 15. We see again, Verse 1, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. 
Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then skip down to verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and all they would not utterly destroy. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So Saul's heart, again, was in the wrong place. He was disobedient to the Lord. And how do we know that? How do we know that Saul's heart was in the wrong place? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Even in this story, what do we see? Yeah, Glenn? Actually, it just doesn't sound like he was very smart sometimes. <laughs> yeah. He thought he had a better idea. Yeah, he thought he had a better idea. Not, not real smart. I mean, can we not look at that and see sin that tempts us, and when we give in to that temptation... Are we just not really that smart as well? You know, I mean, I think we see a, a common pattern here. Stubbornness is the sin of idolatry. He worshiped his own wisdom rather than worshiping one of the gods. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And his actions bear this out. He's disobedient. 
he does what was right in his own eyes instead of what God had clearly commanded him to do. So, you know, and that's exactly right in verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? You know, that's what God wants from His people is obedience, is that kind of faithful dedication, not improvising, not doing what we think is right in our own eyes. You know, the Lord desires obedience, not sacrifice, not half-hearted obedience. That is actually rebellion and a rejection of God's Word. And so God rejects him as king. Um, And so uh, it's interesting if we were to trace then the story of Saul through the rest of 1 Samuel, um, we see that his his true heart will be revealed as he not only disobeys God, but shows that he's actually opposed to God's chosen king. So we won't read it just due to time, but we know how for the rest of Saul's life, he was chasing down David, who he knew was appointed by God, seeking to kill him. Um, And so the story of Saul is a story of one who is in rebellion to God. He looked the part, um, he looked like as what, what we as mankind would want in a king, and yet um, he was rebellious. And so through all of this, God is showing us the natural inclination of our hearts as well. Um, yeah, go ahead, Paul. What's interesting is um, he was told to wipe out the entire people of the Amalekites. And at the end of his life, guess who it was that killed him? An Amalekite. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so what that means to us, the Amalekites represents sin. goes on to say Samuel hacked King Agag to pieces. What it means is with a hack, sin to pieces, or hate sin. And the only way we can truly hate sin is to continually remember that sin is what killed our Savior. Mm. And if we don't remember that, then we're not going to hack Agag to pieces. And that sin that we don't destroy is going to come back to kill us. Yeah, just as the Amalekite came back and and killed Saul in the end. I think that's a good picture there. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there's even hints of the garden in this, is there not? Um, In the same way that disobedience to God sounded appealing, looked good and promised personal benefit in the fruit, so did an earthly king. That looked good. We thought this would really be a benefit uh, to ourselves. And yet that temptation to pledge allegiance to another God is very strong. Um, And so as a result, we just keep getting into trouble if we're left to our own. And so uh, we still need a king. It's interesting, um, at the end of the story of Saul, the people of Israel are in the same place as they were at the end end of the the judges. They're still... um, without a king, uh, a godly king, a, a righteous king, and they're still doing what's right in their own eyes. So when we get to David then, um, that's where Israel is. They're still in need of a king. And so uh, thankfully, as the hymn that, hymn that we often sing says, though our sins are many, His mercy is more. 
And so God is going to be merciful. And let's see how God puts mercy on display. Um, look in chapter 16 of First Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, for I will send you to Jesse, Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And skip down to verse 6. <clears throat> when they came, he, took, he looked on Eliab. So they go to Jesse, Samuel's looking. And then they look on Eliab, Jesse's oldest son, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we shall not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So there's hope once again, um, because a man after God's own heart now has been anointed king. Um, and we should realize at this point that God has planned this all along, right? So the whole deal with Saul and all of that was not just a mistake. Um, remember back to Ruth. Uh, we already saw that, that David was in, in mind. He was, he was on the horizon. And so um, David's the one that Israel has been looking for, whether they realize it or not. In God's mercy, um, he is bringing a king that he describes as a man after his own heart. Um, and that's an interesting thing to think about, what it, what it means to be a man after God's own heart. Uh, but... Turn over to 2 Samuel. Let's skip ahead. And um, let's get some insight into this. What, what does it mean to be a, uh, that he's a man after God's own heart? Let me read in 2 Samuel 7. Let me read verses 1 through 11. Now when the, king, when the king lived, David, in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the Lord dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. 
and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that to you that the Lord will make you a house. So it's interesting here. Um, David, uh, we can see, he seems to genuinely love the Lord. Um, his desire is that God be honored. He says, I'm, in, I'm living in a palace and the Lord is still dwelling in a tent. You know, I want to, to build a house for the Lord. Um, so it seems like his heart's right. It certainly seemed good to Nathan. He says, yeah, go ahead, do it. Uh, but then the word of the Lord comes. And I think what we see here is what's important is not what David wants to do, but rather what God has done and what God will do. Um, you know, this, hopefully these promises that God makes to David sound very familiar, right? In verse 8, he says, um, I took you from the pasture following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you went, have cut off all your enemies. I will make for you a great name like the names of the great ones in the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so they may dwell in their own place, be disturbed no more. He says, and I will make you into a house. So, you know, we kind of get hints of, of God's promise to Abraham. Uh, I'll make a, you a great nation. I will give you the land um, and uh, all the nations will be blessed. So we kind of see that God is continuing to follow through with, with his covenant that he made with Abraham. And it's interesting that God will make David a great name. He will give Israel a place and he will make David a house. Um, so God is God's putting his faithfulness on display again. Um, and I think we, what we see here is it turns out that our hope is not in a king after God's own heart, but actually our hope is in God himself. God is the one who will do everything that is important and, and is eternal. Um, and it turns out that God is the hero of the story, not David. You know, we see this through, through David's life in many places, particularly as he faces the giant. And we see David as a hero, but actually it's God who's the one who is a hero. And even looking back from our perspective, we know that uh, David was not the king we were looking for. Well, verse 722, wherefore there, there art great, thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Amen. Yeah, there is none like God. Uh, and so we know that David's not the king we're looking for. Actually, it's going to be David's son who is the king we're looking for. So look at verse 12 there in chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. 
but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So who is the offspring that God is referring to in his covenant with David? Who is this who will build him a house? Okay, Solomon. Is it Solomon? Christ. Yeah. Not Christ. Okay, let's think about that. Yeah. 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 So we can think about it really in a couple of ways. I mean, the the close fulfillment, and it is true that Solomon is the one who built God. A temple um, and it is very true that as he says there um, I will be to him a father when he commits iniquity I will discipline with the rods of men Solomon was uh, needed to be disciplined by God um, that is absolutely true but when we think about it um, ultimately this is looking forward to the uh, to the one he says I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever so, he, he was assigned our iniquities. Yeah. He had the iniquity and he, we got his righteousness. Yeah, so, so it says there, um, when he, he says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the son of men. So, um, as we look forward to Christ, it was not Christ himself who was the one who committed the iniquity, but he was the one who stood in for those of us who did commit the iniquity. And he was the one who was disciplined with the rods of men for the iniquity that he didn't commit, but that he stood in for on our behalf. So uh, Isaiah 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. So, so the... The prophecy here, yes, uh, we see a close fulfillment in Solomon, but the ultimate king that we're looking for, the one who would ultimately build the house, the eternal house, uh, the spiritual house of God is Christ, and the one who would suffer uh, for the iniquities of men and be beaten by rods uh, that his stripes would heal us again, that is Christ. Amen. Uh, So... Um, Solomon's day was truly a day of peace and rest, but it is Jesus who brings the eternal rest and Jesus who builds the house and, and, and pays for those sins. So, so you just kind of to wrap up this morning, we started this morning with the reality that the lack of a king only leads everyone to do what is right in their own eyes. And what's right in our own eyes is whatever makes m- much of us I think we saw that as we we look at this story. And the result of that is rebellion. It's rejection of God's word. It's selfishness and ultimately it's death. And this this is hopelessness, right?
but God is faithful. He provides a righteous king, even though his people had rejected him as king. And so Saul shows us the foolishness of seeking a king like other nations. But David points us to the one true king, the son of David, um, Jesus Christ, who reigns forever. So he bore the punishment we deserved. He defeated our greatest enemy, death, and he brought us into his kingdom for eternity. Christ is the king we need. Um, he is the one who fulfills that role. So any, uh, we're a little bit over this morning, but any kind of last thoughts? Amen. Yeah, there's so much hope in that, right? Even as we continue to struggle with sin and, and give in to sin, we don't do the things we want to do, as Paul said, but praise be to God who's given us Christ. So, all right, well, let me, let me pray. Lord, thank you again for the king that you have given us. Um, you have fulfilled everything we need. Uh, when we thought we knew what we needed, we didn't, and you had mercy on us. Um, you uh, gave us what we truly needed in Christ, uh, the forgiveness of our sins, the, his payment for the penalty of our sins. Uh, we give you glory for Christ. And I pray that that would uh, just allow us and, and inspire us to live as we should in obedience, in love, and faithfulness to you. Uh, we pray now as we go to hear your word preached and as we sing your word and, and pray your word together, Lord, that we would be pleasing to you and that we would be an encouragement to one another. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.